is Jesus preparing a place for you? He wants to. But do you have any indication here from the Word of God that it's true of you? It can be if you will humbly receive Christ as your Savior. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our message entitled, The Blessing of the Spirit from Romans 8, verses 5 to 13, we've so far seen the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer who is seeking to be delivered from the bondage of sin nature. As we pick up, Pastor Brugge refers to John 16, where Jesus tells his disciples that after his departure, he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell the lives of believers and His Holy Spirit would be instrumental in giving us victory over sin and in allowing us to enjoy fellowship with Him. He said, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper that He may be with you forever. Now, that word another is a very important word. And there's not a single English word that really corresponds. And so I want you to understand what the Greek New Testament says. And and by the way, I hope when I quote the Greek New Testament that you don't think I'm trying to show off because God knows that I am not. It's like one of my professors said in seminary, Greek is like your underwear. You don't show it off, but you use it for support. And I've studied Greek for years and years, and sometimes it can illuminate some things. In Greek, there are two words for the another. There's the Greek word heteros, and there's the Greek word alos. The Greek word alos is another of the same kind, The Greek word heteros means another of a different kind. The word heteros comes directly into English to describe an opposite kind. And so we speak of a heterosexual relating to different sexes. We speak of heteroxy, (laughs) heterodoxy, uh, which speaks of uh, something that's less than orthodox, something that is different from the truth. But then there is the word alos that means another of the same kind. So if I can illustrate, if I asked you for a heteros biblios, another book, you could give me any book you wanted. You could give me a book on geography, on running, on Spanish, on on, uh, anything you can imagine, golf, hunting, you name it. You could give me any book you wanted. But if I asked you for an alos biblios, You would have to give me another book exactly like this book, torn in the same places it is torn, marked in the same places it is marked. That is the word that Jesus Christ is using here. He speaks of another helper. Some translations say another advocate. The old English says another comforter. He is going to send another one just like himself. Namely, look at verse 17, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in with you, but will be in you. Remember, no Old Testament saint was permanently indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. That's why John, whom Jesus said, no one ever born of a woman was greater of John, but he was least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why? Because John never lived to see Pentecost. John was beheaded before the crucifixion. He never experienced this marvelous revelation that the Old Testament prophets spoke of concerning the new covenant. 
And so Jesus speaks here of the Holy Spirit who's been in their midst, operating through Christ himself, but he was going to come live inside them. They were going to become temples of the Spirit. And then he says in verse 18 that this alos helper is so much like me that he can say in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. The Greek word is orphanus, from which comes our word orphan. An orphan is, uh, is someone who's been uh, bereft of their parents, so to speak. And Jesus said, though you may feel helpless tonight, though you may feel hopeless tonight, though you may feel devastated tonight because I told you I am leaving, I want you to know I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send another one just like me. He says, I will come to you. So here's a promise of Christ's coming that is so interesting because he is simultaneously absent and at the same time present. I will come to you. And he is so much like the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, that these are equivalent terms. And though physically, invisibly, he would leave the disciples to go to the Father's house, as he said in John 14, to prepare a place for them, yet spiritually and invisibly, he would be present with them. Now, this does not discount the literal second coming as the liberals use it. But he's saying, listen, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, because in sending God the Holy Spirit, I myself am coming. And this is a fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet said of Messiah, that he would come as the everlasting father because he would not leave us as orphans. So when we get saved, let's ask an important question. Who is it that indwells us? Bring up this chart as you can see. God the Father indwells us, the Bible teaches. God the Son indwells us. And God the Holy Spirit indwells us. Now, last week we were describing the Trinity that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. That while they are distinct, they are inseparable. So, for instance, the Bible teaches in 1 John 4 and verse 12 that I am dwelt by God the Father. John writes, God, a reference to the Father, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. And yet Colossians says that Christ is in us, the hope of glory. In other passages like 1 Corinthians 6 says that we're indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit. This is part of the mystery of the Trinity. So Jesus is promising, listen, I'm going to leave, but I'm at the same time going to come to you. The members of the Godhead are inseparable, and yet they are distinct. Now back to Romans 8. There's a comparison here between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. Now follow along here in verses 10 and 11, and we'll look at one final consequence of being indwelt. Notice, if Christ is in you, and he is through the Holy Spirit, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is law alive because of righteousness. With Jesus Christ living in us, the Bible says, my spirit is alive, but my body is dead. You say, well, you look very much alive up there shaking this morning, Pastor. Well, from earth's perspective, I look alive. But from heaven's perspective, the Bible teaches my body is dead. Why? Because this principle of death is upon me. I am living, as he will later describe in this eighth chapter, in an aging, decaying body. In flesh and blood, mortality must put on immortality. This corruptible state must put on the incorruptible state. 
The body is aging. It can get sick. And I have to bring it from time to time to a repair shop. It's not getting better. It is getting worse. And so is yours. So don't look so pious. Look at verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you've been saved, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is coming a time that this verse promises that God is going to take me out of this death-like state and give me a new body. Thank God, as uh, 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is the twinkling of an eye? It's faster than you can blink. In the twinkling of an eye, this mortality will put on immortality. But have you ever thought about the role that God the Holy Spirit will play in that process? When we come to the 23rd verse, if you look down there in your Bible, uh, here it is. Notice he says, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Right now, we just have the first initial workings of the Spirit, but he's not done with us yet. As Romans 8.11 and Romans 8.23 teaches, we are awaiting the resurrection of our body. And so the Bible teaches me when I am saved, I am justified in the Spirit. He says it here, I am made alive in the Spirit. The Spirit is alive, why? Because of righteousness. You understand that, right? When you are outside of Christ, you are in Adam, you are in your own righteousness that falls short of the glory of God. But when you are positionally, by faith in the death, burial, and resurrection, placed in Christ, God clothes you in his righteousness, and for the first time ever, God the Holy Spirit can come and inhabit you. And so the Spirit is alive, he says here, because of righteousness. But notice in addition, not only am I justified in my spirit, the Bible also teaches that I am being sanctified in my soul. That is my mind, my will, and my emotions. That portion of the immaterial portion of man is being shaped into the image of Christ. Verse 12. So then, he says, brethren, we're under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Why are we under obligation? What? Because God has given us a new mindset, a new mind in which to think. And so, but that's not over. He's not done with me yet. Not only am I made alive in the Spirit, not only do I have a new mind shape, where, new mindset where my mind, will, and emotions can be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 13, he goes on to say, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now follow this. I know it's the meat of the word, but we need to get it. He is basically here giving the fruit or the proof that we have had a second birth, that we have a new mindset. If you are living only after the things of the flesh, I'm not talking here about perfection. Paul is talking about direction. If the direction of your life is just the things of the flesh, the Bible says you'll die. I spoke to a woman this week in her 60s who's hooked on drugs. She calls herself a born-again Christian. I said, look, there's, I know you love your pain pills. And you've got to live with these pain pills. And, and not because you have pain, but because you like the way they make you feel. I said, there's one of two possibilities. 
You're either unregenerate and therefore only living after the things of this world, or you are a rebellious, disobedient Christian who's out of fellowship with Almighty God. But if the sole direction of your life is to live after the things of the flesh, then you have good, positive proof, reason to believe that you have never truly been born again. Understand, this is not one of those I can lose my salvation verses. Before we are done with the eighth chapter, Paul will give one of the most compelling, airtight arguments for the eternal security of the believer that you will find anywhere in all of the New Testament. But he's basically teaching in a way that is similar to the way you might teach your child. You say, listen, if you walk out into this street without looking, you're going to get hit by a car. Or if you put your hand on a hot burner, you're going to get burned. That's a painful thought. In the same way, he's saying, if you are living according to your fleshly desires and you pursue only those things, you're going to make a mess out of your life. And in the end, you will experience death, the second death. Paul is simply reiterating a truth that he has already taught here in Romans, that if you are genuinely saved, your life changes, and if your life hasn't changed, you haven't been saved. Listen, we do a lot of people an injustice by saying, well, they're just out of fellowship with God. They're just one of those carnal Christians, because we don't want to believe sometimes that our own children, our own grandchildren, or the guy we work with, whom we love dearly, that they're lost. And I'm not saying they have to be on drugs or in adultery. They can have a this world only kind of mindset living just for the here and now where they could care less about the things of the kingdom of God. And those people have good reason to doubt whether or not they've ever truly been saved. So I've been justified in my spirit. I am being sanctified in my soul. And some glad day he's arguing here, I'll be glorified in my body. Now, get these terms straight, either directly or indirectly. He has spoken about the three major ministries of God, the Holy Spirit. We've been baptized by the Holy Spirit, made alive in our spirit at the moment of conversion. The Spirit is alive because of righteousness. We are to be filled with the Spirit, or here he says, to walk by the Spirit and the present, that our mind, will, and emotions might be shaped. That's called sanctification. And someday, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to come with Christ, and He, by His power, just like by his power he gave Christ a human body and added humanity to his divinity, he's going to take your mortal body and he's going to reshape it and reconstruct it into a resurrected body. That's called glorification. So we've been baptized by the Spirit in the past. We're to walk by the Spirit in the present. And in the future, he is going to glorify us. And so what happened to Adam in the garden is reversed. Adam died immediately in his spirit. The lights went out. Their robe of light was gone. They were aware that they were naked and they're hiding from God, not seeking God. He died in his spirit. He began to age in his body. And if the problem is not fixed, a man will die forever in a place of judgment. But when you get saved, you are immediately quickened in the spirit. You are being shaped and transformed into the image of Christ. And someday God will raise your body up alive. Hallelujah. These are great, marvelous birthrights for the child of God. There is no condemnation. There is a wonderful liberation. I have been set free from the law of sin and death. And this freedom brings an exciting obligation to live not for myself, but for Jesus Christ. 
Christ. And this is all true because of a glorious inhabitation that God the Holy Spirit lives in me. And he's just the earnest. He's just the down payment. He is just the guarantee that what God began, he is going to complete. Now, how can we apply this this morning? Let me make some applications in the form of questions. Number one, is your disposition and desire for the world or for the Lord? What is it? He said in verse 5, we studied it, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So when Paul contrasts the mind of the believer with the mind of the unbeliever, he is not looking at IQ, he's looking at DQ, and there's a big difference. It's not your intelligent quotient that reveals the difference between the heart of a believer and the heart of an unbeliever. It's your desire quotient. Um, he's saying, like David said in Psalm 23, Who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, David says, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Listen, it's not your IQ that matters, it's your DQ that matters. Paul will write in Romans 10, for instance, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He has already earlier written a book called 2 Corinthians, and in that he said, We have as our ambition, our desire, same word, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. In other words, Paul's saying, it is my desire, it is my driving ambition in this life to please the Lord God. Question, has that ever been true of you in this life? See, and what is really dangerous is that a person can have a spiritual IQ that supersedes their spiritual DQ. You say, explain, pastor. If you grew up in the church and you've been exposed to the Bible then you can spiritually understand up here the truths of the gospel, but miss salvation by 12 inches because it's never touched the heart. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And in Matthew 7, that's the mess that Jesus is describing. He's not talking about Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and Judaism and all the isms of the world. He's talking about people who, who say they are born again. He's talking about people who, who would perfectly and rightly answer the diagnostic questions. You see, when a man answers the diagnostic questions wrong, you know they're not a Christian. You're not judging them. God is judging them because his word has said it. But what is so slippery is when a man can answer the diagnostic questions correct and still be lost. And that's the person that Jesus warns us of. And he doesn't go for some ho-hum kind of testimony to illustrate this. He goes for the most dramatic of testimonies. Lord, I preached, I prophesied in your name. Lord, in your name, I cast out demons. In your name, Lord, I, I did miracles. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Not I once knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so I meet Christians today who have a high spiritual IQ, but they are more interested in going to the bar and partying than they are in following the Lord God and living for Him. And Jesus said, this won't be few of a few people in the final judgment. This will be true of many people. And we would do wise to take a long, hard look within, as Paul will tell the Corinthians, to test yourself to see if you be of the faith. 
Secondly, I would ask, is your destination for heaven or hell? Please notice in verse 6, there is no in-between, for the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. I was recently watching a, a natural disaster, and they seem in these last couple of weeks to be happening all over the world. And whether people care to admit it or not, the taproot of the panic that I was witnessing is the fear of death. And it comes out in natural disasters. And I'm telling you, we haven't seen anything yet because during the great tribulation period, there will be massive natural disasters like this world has never seen that will take two-thirds of the world's population, the Revelation teaches. The earthquakes and tornadoes and floods that we're seeing today are child's play compared to what is coming. But if you've been saved, you don't have this deep-rooted fear of death. Why? Because there's a light in your soul. When we come later to this chapter, he will say the spirit bears witness to my spirit that I'm a child of God so much so that God is my daddy. He's my Abba. He's my father. I was reading again this week of John Todd, born in Rutland, Vermont, to a family of eight children. And in the early 1800s, his family moved to Killingsworth, where at the age of six, there was a fire in their home. And in trying to rescue all the children, which they did successfully, both parents died. Now, their relatives also had large families, and they weren't sure what they were going to do with all these children. So they ended up divining them out. And one dear loving aunt took John. Charles Allen writes the moving account of how little John was entrusted to a family friend as he was brought to the aunt's home. In the nightfall, Alan picks up the conversation that John had with his family friend who had come to retrieve him. Let me read it. Uh, John asks, will she be there when we arrive? Oh, yes, she will be there waiting for you. Will I like living with her? My son, you've fallen into good hands. Will she love me like my mom? Oh, my son, she has a big heart. Will I have my own room? Will she let me have a puppy? She has everything all set. I think she has some surprises for you, John. Do you think she'll go to bed before we get there? Oh, no, John. Surely she will wait up for you. You see, when we get out of these woods in just a moment, you'll see her candle lit in the window. And Charles, Charles Allen writes, sure enough, out in the clearing, there was a candle in the window. And there stood that dear woman who reached down and lifted up that tired, bewildered lad, hugged him tightly, kissed him, and said, Welcome home, John. Inside, there was a big burning fire in the hearth and a hot supper on the stove, and he ate a little. She carried him into his new room and laid beside him until he fell asleep. John Todd grew up to be a great minister of the gospel, but it was there in his aunt's home that he grew up. It was a place of enchantment for him because of his aunt. It awed him that such a replacement existed, that there was a place for him and someone was waiting for him. He left a house of death and she had given him a second home. Years later, long after he had moved away, she wrote him a letter and she was at the end of her life and she, he sensed that death was soon for her. And so he wrote her these words. My dear auntie, years ago when I was a boy, I left a house of death, not knowing where I was to go, whether anyone cared, whether it was the end of me. The ride was long and your family friend encouraged me. Finally, he pointed out your candle to me. There we were in the yard and there you stood, 
And embracing me, you took me by the hand into my own room that you had made up. After all these years, I can't believe it. How you did all that for me. I was expected. I felt safe in that room, so welcomed. It was my room. Now it's your turn to go. And as one who has tried it out, I'm writing to let you know that someone is waiting up. The light is on. Your room is ready. The door is open. And as you ride into the yard, dear auntie, don't worry. You're expected. I know. Because once I saw God standing in your doorway long ago, I wonder, will someone be waiting for you? Is Jesus preparing a place for you? He wants to. But do you have any indication here from the Word of God that it's true of you? It can be if you will humbly receive Christ as your Savior. Like John taught, I too am in a house of death. The body is dead, the Bible says, and flesh and blood cannot inhabit the kingdom of God. But because the blessed Holy Spirit has baptized me into Christ, there's now no condemnation. Because He lives in me, I am able to see the law of the Spirit of life supersede the law of sin and death. And now I am under a new obligation that I want to follow. And some glad day, I don't know when, he's coming for Carl Brogy, and there's someone waiting for me, and I know it. Do you know that? Do you have that assurance today? You can. Does the Spirit bear witness with your spirit that you have definitely become a child of God, or do you just have a big, fat spiritual IQ? Now, our Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank You that what You penned here through Paul some 2,000 years ago is as fresh today as the day You wrote it. I pray today for someone here who's unsure of their eternal destiny, that someone in humility would cry out to Jesus Christ. I pray especially for someone, Father, who may have a false assurance of salvation, who gives none of the marks of genuine conversion as a way of life. And I pray today, O God, that You would work upon them, that they would come in faith. But those of us who have met You, You remind us of these truths You said because we now have a new obligation to live by the Spirit. Help us to do that this week. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. To listen again to today's message, The Blessings of the Spirit, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets. You'll find those available on the iTunes Store for Apple products or the Google Play Store for Android devices. Simply search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen to us online at searchthescriptures.org or if you would like a CD or DVD copy, Just call us at 877-787-7478. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. Well, you can do that now on Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to it online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, 
Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we begin our look at the blessings of adoption. Join us then as we search the scriptures.